from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of smoking audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. I have an eight-year-old and then this little baby who's one and a half. And the eight-year-old is kind of like curious about all the older kids' stuff. I actually told her what the swear words were this morning. Mm. She asked and I was like, I'm going to just tell you what they are and how to spell them. And if I tell you them, would you just not say them? (laughs) Just not say them for a while. My mother really never told me anything. But then when I went and was like, hey, what about this? She was like, I know. It's crazy, isn't it? (laughs) Wait a minute, what do you mean? Why don't you tell me? She's like, I don't know. I just, I thought I'd wait for you. Amazing. (laughs) Hello, I'm Minnie Driver. Welcome to Mini Questions Season 2. I've always loved Proust's questionnaire. It was originally a 19th century parlor game where players would ask each other 35 questions aimed at revealing the other player's true nature. It's just the scientific method, really. In asking different people the same set of questions, you can make observations about which truths appear to be universal. I love this discipline. And it made me wonder, what if these questions were just the jumping off point? What greater depths would be revealed if I asked these questions as conversation starters with thought leaders and trailblazers across all these different disciplines? So I adapted Proust's questionnaire and I wrote my own seven questions that I personally think are pertinent to a person's story. They are, when and where were you happiest? What is the quality you like least about yourself? What relationship, real or fictionalized, defines love for you? 
What question would you most like answered? What person, place or experience has shaped you the most? What would be your last meal? And can you tell me something in your life that's grown out of a personal disaster? And I've gathered a group of really remarkable people, ones that I am honoured and humbled to have had the chance to engage with. You may not hear their answers to all seven of these questions. We've whittled it down to which questions felt closest to their experience or the most surprising or created the most fertile ground to connect. My guest today on Mini Questions is musician and multiple Tony Award winner, Anais Mitchell. Anais wrote the extraordinarily brilliant musical Hadestown, which won eight Tonys out of 14 nominations, including Best Musical and Best Original Score. She is, by any standard, a musical bloody genius. And her curiosity, her talent, and her spirit feel like they permeate all aspects of her life. Hadestown is a telling of the Greek myth of Orpheus and Eurydice through jazz, folk, rock, and pure Americana. I don't know if you know the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. Orpheus descends into the underworld to rescue his love, Eurydice, and... When Hades, king of the underworld, allows him to take her back to the world, his only instruction is that Orpheus must not look back as they are ascending up into the world and Eurydice is walking behind him. And in this moment of what I have always thought of as sort of thick-headed hubris, although Aeneas sees it differently, Orpheus looks back and Eurydice is lost to him forever. It's a sad myth but Hadestown is full of the kind of raw, soulful joy that makes even this sad love story shine with magic. When and where were you happiest? Yeah, when and where was I happiest? This one is so tricky. There's so many different moments and eras of my life. And I feel like immediately I'm like, oh, I should talk about birth of my children. I should, you know, things I should say. But the one that just popped into my mind first is this moment I was like, I was 27 years old and I was coming out of like a kind of a stuck time in my life, like creatively, socially, just feeling like, Everything was inching along and not, and then never like coming to fruition. And it just felt kind of stuck. I guess it was my Saturn return, right? 27, kind of classic for that. So the first thing that happened was I read Eckhart Tolle's book for the first time. Have you read those books? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Did you read What the Power of Now? It was actually A New Earth was the first one I read. Oh, yeah. And I, I probably wouldn't have read it except someone I really trusted kind of said, here, they saw me in my Saturn return <laughs> moment. They're like, here, you should read this book. I've reread it since, but it was the first time it really packs a wallop. For people that haven't read it, it's all about being present in the moment and kind of detaching like your experience of life and being in the world from all of the names that we put on it. So I'm reading this book and I'm like, I'll read a few pages and then just put it down and feel so alive <laughs> and joyful. And at this moment, I was offered a gig opening a tour in Europe for a band, a big, much bigger band that I didn't really know, but I came to like really admire. And so it was me opening solo acoustic guitar for this big, beautiful band and riding on their bus, you know, 
in Europe. And we would kind of like stay up all night. We'd play the gig. We'd stay up all night listening to music. What was the thing before the iPhone, the iPod, right? <laughs> like pass around the iPod and everyone would get to choose music. And we just were so in love with music. And I remember this one morning that we woke up, we had a day off and we were in Paris and we were like rolled out of the bus and there's this little cafe and started to drink beer, you know, <laughs> in, the, in the daylight, like these tall French beers. And then just like coming out of this cafe and the sun was shining, it was kind of cold day, the sun is shining. And I looked across the street and there was the Louvre. And so I went to the Louvre and the art was hitting like a thousand times as hard because the Eckhart Tolle <laughs> and the, and the bear, beer. And the <laughs> yeah. And the friendship, the camaraderie and just being out there doing what I wanted to be doing. And so that was like a moment for me. That was a very happy time. I love that. You know, what's funny is like the idea when we think about happiness and it's certainly in having talked to loads of people about it, the idea of there being a sort of a purity in anything, that it is unalloyed, that there isn't a confluence of things happening at any one moment that creates these moments. Like it's, I feel like we're extraordinarily binary and going, well, if I'm doing this, I will be happy, this one thing. Whereas it's really Eckhart Tolle and it's beer and it's light and yeah. Paris and opportunity and probably your certain return. It's all these things. Yeah, that makes total sense. Again and again, I come to the realization that like the big moments I'm often not as present for, like the winning of the Tony or whatever. I was like in a fugue state, <laughs> you know, like I just, I wasn't even there. And my, even my wedding, you know, which was like so beautiful. It felt like such a, all my friends and family, this culmination of so much and this commitment. And it was kind of like an incredible party that I wasn't entirely at. And so I've just sort of have stopped looking for satisfaction and happiness from the moments when everyone's like, how does it feel? How does it feel? I think that is exactly it. And as with most sort of like ruminations that I think we probably then forget about and get on with making the coffee or changing the diaper, it's like, take your eye off the ball. Like my dad used to say when something was really bad, when something was really hard, stop looking at it, even though it feels overwhelming, take your eye off it and get back into the sort of minutiae of what is happening. And you will start to metabolize your life again and weirdly piggyback your better feeling onto that shitty thing. I think these, in the same way that these huge moments, they require almost too much for us to be able to quantify. Whereas it's these tiny moments these fragments that you patch together and suddenly that's where the explosion yeah, comes from. Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. And I feel like two things jumped into my mind. One is like if you're doing a crossword puzzle, you know, and you get stuck on a clue and you just want to like bang your head against the newspaper or <laughs> to cheat. find this clue. <laughs> yeah, or cheat, right? But usually like if you take a break, like you just got to take a break and put your mind somewhere else. And then the soft focus, like a lot of things come out of that soft focus. That's true creatively. I think you're totally. writing. When I'm writing, and when it's difficult, I walk. There is a whole thing neurologically that literally when you are physically doing something else, your brain stops whirring. Your right and left brain are sort of more balanced when you add in another activity. So it actually kind of makes sense. But I always find that the great unblocking comes when I do something else. Yeah, yeah. At one point when I was working on Town, I was living in Park Slope in Brooklyn and I was kind of borrowing my friend's studio, which was in Lefferts Gardens around the other side of the park as a writing spot. So I would get on my bike and I would ride around Prospect Park to get to the studio and I would have all these ideas, like I'd have ideas on the bike. Sometimes I'd roll around the park, the whole park, and then get to Lefferts Garden, get to the studio, get to the desk, 
and then nothing, you know, nothing would happen at the desk. Just as such an illustration of that soft focus. And I even feel like in my life, I've noticed like side projects often are so magical. In Hades Town, you know, for a long time, it was a side project. I felt like my songwriter career was the main thing. And then this is this weird other thing I'm going to kind of soft focus on. At a certain point, it became the main thing. But there's a charmed quality to those things that we're not obsessing over. <laughs> how, how did you write? Because you wrote another record while you were writing Hades Town. Bonnie. Exactly. Bonnie Light Horseman. Like, was that what you were talking about? Was that you had to take your eye off the ball and do something else? Or did you just owe a record and you had to write it? Yeah, that felt the same way. It was a side project. I was like, this is not my identity. There's not a lot of anxiety around that music at all. And it was easy. I was working with these two beautiful friend collaborators, Josh Kaufman and Eric D. Johnson, and it felt easy. And usually I don't trust that. Like, I think it's got to be hard or it's not going to be good. But that band felt like, oh, wow, it's it feels so intuitive and natural. And so it was at that point, that was the side project that was sort of giving me life. <laughs> so interesting. I think my dad might have been a bit of an Eckhart Tolle because I do think it's like take your mind off the thing and put it elsewhere and then the thing will work itself out and you'll get everything that you need to solve that problem by doing this other thing. As with most personal growth, it sounds counterintuitive, which is probably why we don't do it enough because it's like, wow, it sounds crazy. I'm not going to do that. Right. Yeah, exactly. The, um, Director of Hades Town, Rachel Chavkin, is like kind of a Jedi. Yeah. Jedi creative person. And she gets a lot of good ideas when she's napping. And she'll take these little naps where she's very good at falling asleep in the middle of the day, you know, anywhere. Just kind of like go in a back room and lay on the floor and can like make herself fall asleep. And the way that she does it is she kind of, she lays down and then she says she frays the mind by thinking about like three or four things at once. Like three or four things put, that she's interested in, she put her mind on them at once. And that kind of is like a nap to knock her out. <laughs> and then, I love it. She fries her own circuit board. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. <laughs> exactly. And somehow the frying of the circuit board then leads to like these great ideas that happen in the nap state. In the so. nap space. Mm. Well, that's also her book now. It's called Nap Space. Yeah. <laughs> From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. 
That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. What quality do you like least about yourself? I am definitely someone who overthinks and second guesses a lot. And I think just an insecurity that I feel like I've lived with my whole life and I keep expecting it to go away. You know, as like I get older, I'm like, when am I going to give less? Can I swear on this show or no swearing? Oh, yeah, you can swear. Absolutely. I give you full permission. Like not like give no fucks anymore or fewer, you know, give fewer <laughs> I haven't arrived there yet. I just, I care too much sometimes. Did I say something awkward? Is this song, you know, as good as it could be? Do I look bad? You know, things like that. It's exhausting. Do you find that the achievements, so as you're standing there with the hardware of a Tony, like well, <laughs> multiple Tonys in your hands, did you ever sort of consciously allow that to mitigate that other voice? Like, do you ever think back to your achievements and help them soothe those moments of insecurity? I think no. The one thing I will say I, I feel a little bit more confident about now is that I've written enough songs that I know that at the moment when I'm like, I don't know how to write a song. There's no way I'm going to finish this song. There's, you know, I kind of can look back and be like, well, you did finish all those other songs. So probably it's going to happen. You know, <laughs> that feels a little more sure for me. But in terms of like, I'm meeting somebody at a party and I'm like, I want a Tony. It doesn't cross my mind. You know, just... in the bathroom, I want a Tony. I want a Tony. Yeah. I want a Tony. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> Taking like a power stance in the in the women's room. We certainly allow ourselves to be haunted by the shitty things that happen to us. Oh, yeah. Why don't we allow ourselves to be beautifully haunted by those things that we've achieved? I wonder why we don't do that more. They're there. They're available energy and actually fundamentally tangible. Like you did these things. I do that sometimes with my son. I look at Henry when, when things are not working out and go, I made a person. I made a person who yeah. is so funny and talented and kind and good and give myself some sort of credit for that. Yeah, kids do kind of change the equation a little bit because it's like your relationship with them has nothing to do with your creative accomplishments. Yeah. Or, you know, it's kind of like there's a foundation of family love that is going to be there. However awkward you are at a party, <laughs> it's going to be there. Yeah, exactly. So, how old is your son? He just turned 13. 
Oh, amazing. Wow. It is completely bananas because it's the same. It's the same feeling as when they were one and a half or when they were six months old. I'm 7,000 miles away from my son right now and it's oh. brutal. Yeah. Even though I know he's totally fine and happy and doing his thing, it's just, yeah. I don't think that ever goes away. That feeling of, I need to be in close proximity. Yeah, I wonder what it's like for my parents now, you know? <laughs> like in adult life, if you still have those feelings or, or not. It's funny. I think they do. I just think that there's more space in between. Because that the letting go, which is what nobody ever tells you about, about parenting, the very first thing, literally, physically, that you do with your child is let go. Right. Everything is more letting go. And I think as you get older, I was very close with my mother, but I watched how she would foster those spaces in between because she knew that we had to go and do our thing. But I know now that it was active and conscious and probably quite painful. Right. I know it's brutal, actually. I mean, it's beautiful. It's beautiful and brutal parenting because I would literally, I would have Henry carry me around in his book bag. Like, if possible, I'd just like get inside his backpack <laughs> and just be like, I'll sit here through double chemistry with you. Yeah, yeah. I just want to yeah. be by you. What relationship, real or fictionalized, defines love for you? I'm kind of a romantic, like I always have kind of been a romantic and loved the idea of, you know, love at first sight and a kind of twin souls, you know, and yeah, that idea that you meet someone. I'm thinking of Orpheus and Eurydice right now because it's... That's what it was. Yeah, I remember like a bunch of times in the sort of dramaturgical trenches of working on the show, people would be dramaturg or like someone else would be like, but why does he love her? You know, why does Orpheus love Eurydice? And I would be like, because he's Orpheus and she's Eurydice, which is not enough for, you know, a lot of people. They need to see the kind of causality. But the idea of this, what's what is written in the stars and oh, another kind of fictional version of that that went deep for me is that Hemingway book for whom the bell tolls. Oh, yeah. You know, just these like young revolutionaries, like fighting fascism and then they're in love and it's like the earth moves and all that stuff. And I feel like I've had an experience of that with my life partner. I've been with the same guy since I was 19. We were like not fully formed in our identities. You know, we were like wet clay <laughs> when we met and it wasn't full on, you know, from the age of 19, there was kind of a courtship and there was some breakups and stuff, but there were a bunch of moments that felt like these star-crossed moments, like, oh my God, this is my person, you know, and almost like a scary, terrifying feeling because you see your mortality connected to it. It contains everything. This idea of like the love at first sight, it's like youthful infatuation and beauty. And then also, you know, you're going to die with this person. Like you, you see the whole thing and it contains all of it. And, it. and so there's a way in which it's almost like it's tragic, even if it's not Orpheus and Eurydice or, or Romeo and Juliet. It's like even if you're married for 75 years and then you die in each other's arms, it's still like a tragedy at some level. Right. Wow. The span I think that's pretty amazing. Like you hold a paradigm that is pretty massive. Had the idea at 19 to be able to be with someone, that kind of love and the love now. Are you in your like late thirties, like around? I just turned 40. Look at that, like that 20 year span. Like that's incredible to be able to see the end and to not let it derail the now, to see it as tragic, to see it as beautiful, to see it as never ending. I mean, no wonder you love the Greeks, really. <laughs> I woke up this morning thinking about Orpheus and Eurydice because the last thing, this person that I, he was my best friend and I loved him very, very, very much. We were together for a long time and then it ended horribly. 
Uh. The most helpful thing he ever said to me was, don't look back. And I've always linked it to Orpheus and Eurydice. I've always linked it to that moment of just don't look back. Just don't. I know what happens if you do. You know what happens if you do. Just don't do it. I think about those gifts that you get from people that have hurt you. And I wondered if he got it from Orpheus. <laughs> yeah. He loved the Greeks too, so. And by don't look back for you, was it to not doubt yourself? Was it the idea of like, don't look down almost? It is literally coming back to that Eckhart Tolle idea of, it is a complete illusion to look back, to look back and feel that that is going to have really any relevance. And I know that's sort of a bold statement, but the now this moment, to trust this now, to trust that all of the ideas that you think, like, if I look back, I will get this. If I look back and I pick over the bones of this thing, if I look back because I'm frightened, it will somehow make my now better. And that that is a fallacy. It's such an extraordinary gift that he gave me because I, I think it often, particularly when yeah. I start being frightened about historical stuff that I'm worried is going to play out again in this now. I shriek it at myself sometimes. Yeah. This morning, I was shrieking it at Orpheus, like, just don't, just don't look, just keep walking. <laughs> just keep walking and it's going to be fine. Like, trust. Yeah. You can't hear yeah. anything, you can't see anything, you don't know anything. Trust this very moment and you will be all right. Oh, man. Yeah. A cosmic thing that kind of happened with our Orpheus and Eurydice. I, I think I'm allowed to tell, it's quite public at this point, but our actors that play Orpheus and Eurydice totally fell in love, you know. Did they really? That's amazing. Yeah. And I thought, uh-oh, you know, when I saw that that was happening, I was like, I hope they can keep it together because it's not going to be easy, you know, six months down the line if there's a breakup and they're like trying to play these star-crossed lovers and but they're still together. They made it through the pandemic. They're like, got a dog. Like, it's beautiful. And they're so beautiful together. It's crazy because it's a story that the people know how it ends, but there's still a gasp. Like when he turns around, it's like, how did this happen? That's exactly it. We want to change the ending of the story. Maybe like seeing the repetition of that over and over again, it's like you, you can't change that story, but you can take the piece that you're shrieking about and you can bring it into your life and go, I know how that works out. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also something about like you're saying that sort of this ex of yours gave you this piece of wisdom that you have carried on in your life and that there's a way in which like almost like you light someone's candle with your candle and then or their cigarette with your cigarette and you keep a flame going and that's kind of I think in the Orpheus story at least the way it plays out with Hades Town is like well okay we still celebrate Orpheus because he he kept the flame and now it's someone else's turn. God that's such a beautiful image like the relay of love. Mm, yes. And we judge the tragic part of it, the part of it not working out. But actually, as you just said, like in your own life, it's part of the whole. The tragedy is always there present in the joy and the wonder. It doesn't diminish or take away. Orpheus seeing Eurydice in the forest or wherever it was that he saw her and falling madly in love and the very short time that they had to love each other or the short time that I had to love this man. It's not yeah. diminished by how it ended up in a way, but right. it's hard to hold that in your heart, that all these yes. things can be true. Yeah. Poor humans. <laughs> We're given so many tools that we just don't use. <laughs> I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. What would be your last meal? For my last meal, I would like it to be a sort of a, like, this is your life meal, you know? That I could return to some dishes that were, you know how different times of your life you just do one dish a lot, and then maybe you're sick of it and you don't do it again, but then if you were to have it again, it reminds you of this era, and so here's what I'm going to do. Is this okay? It's a few things. Yes! Okay, okay. So, for my childhood... I'm going to have, so I grew up on this sheep farm and my parents, they spent a little time on this Greek island when they were young, hippies. Then like they carried the kind of romance for this Greek island with them, I think, in my childhood. And so my mom, she would make like a marinated lamb chops. It was all about just like marinate them like crazy with the family marinade and then broil them like really fast on both sides. And also I think like she would make these Greek potatoes. They had lemon and garlic. And so I associate that with this sort of special family meal that we would have. Like if people came over for dinner, it was always like, we're going to have lamb. So I'm going to have that. And then, so my husband, my like life partner, he is a farmer of vegetables. And there's a couple of kind of vegetable dishes that I associate with him in different times of our life. And so I'll get his vegetables and I'll make like a kale salad. You massage the kale with, you know, the salt and the oil. And then maybe there's feta and lemon and like maybe some toasted seeds. 
and they're all like finely ribboned, <laughs> ribboned up. And all right, what else was I think? Oh yeah, okay. So Hades Town. I worked on Hades Town for so long, and I spent a lot of time with Rachel Chavkin, the director, and our music director Liam Robinson. And there's a whole era where we were working on the show out of town, and so we would be put up in these little flats. And a lot of times, like late at night, we'd come back to the flat, someone's flat, and we would fry some halloumi cheese. Like we all got into halloumi at the same time. And now if I taste a halloumi cheese, I picture this like really joyful time of like in the trenches with those guys working on that show, which was really like a third of my creative life was like working on that show. So I have the halloumi. I don't have a meaningful dessert, really. So I might just have like a chocolate mousse. You know, this is a thing that I always like, don't let myself have it. So I would have it. Wow. I really like that. There's a kind of Dickensian, let's go back and revisit the ghosts of meals past. Yeah. It's like Proust. It's like the Madeleine and the tea. That's a way better analogy. (laughs) I love that because it does it. It lights up those parts of our life. So it really just becomes the illustration of memory in such an immediate way. And food can do that. Like, and, and actually, I guess the sense of smell really does that in a way that, you know, you smell like a product, like a perfume that your boyfriend wore when you're like 14 or something. And it's just like a complete body slam of <laughs> memory. And music is that way too. I feel music does that too. I but. couldn't agree more. Well, if I listen to Elliot Smith, it's so painful and it is so Ugh. beautiful. I was in the studio with him while he was recording EXO and when he Ugh. was layering these vocals and it was it was so funny, like watching somebody build something which is still standing, now he's gone. It's incredible. It's like experiencing the strongest moments of him. Mm. It's so interesting how there is music. It hits you on every single level and kind of takes your breath away. It's so physiological. Like you really feel it in your body. And I'm the kind of person I I get like obsessed with one song. Almost like I I can't breathe, like I need it. You know, like you get in the car and it's like, quick, get it on, like get it on the stereo, like I need it. And just I'll listen again and again and again to one song or one album or one artist at a time. And then if I hear that song, it takes me back. Yeah, it's feeling right. It's getting having permission to feel again, poor, sweet humans. We can't marshal all of the stuff that there is to synthesize and feel in this life. And I think music is a way of doing that as is food, as is love. I suppose. Yeah. Music is very calming for me. I find like if I'm at home and like, you know, the boredom of children. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Of small children. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Small children. They're just like they want to read the same board book a million times. And if I have music on, I don't mind. You know, (laughs) if you're cooking something, they go together. If you're cooking something, you smell that thing cooking out of the kitchen and you've got the music on. Everything is okay. You can sort of be cool. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Certainly with the children thing, it gives you a place to sit on that is above the grinding repetition of small children, which is obviously how they're learning. They need to repeat all that stuff, but it does make you go insane. But listening to whole records, I must say, I love doing that. My son's just started doing that and going, you know, because these children, they've just been indoctrinated with like a single or like a song. So playing him albums, he came running in the other day and he just listened to Inner Visions and he was like, mom, it's connected. <laughs> the whole thing is connected. And I was like doing something else. I was like, wait, what do you mean? He's like, the songs, it's connected. Like if you listen to them one after the other. <laughs> I was like, oh. My sweet friend who's like born into the world of like infinite 
infinite shuffle. Like there is no connectivity. It was so brilliant, his little face when he saw that music could be written, you know, all, all the way through in that an A side and a B side. Like there was a reason that those five songs right. were there, the other five songs were there and how they connected. Yes, I love that. Well, first of all, I love your your accent, your son, whatever, your impression of him. I know he gets very annoyed because he doesn't really talk like this anymore, but he did his whole life. I have video to prove it. <laughs> he always sounded like a tiny bookie from the Catskills. Oh, amazing. Amazing. Yeah, I know what you're talking about with the sequencing of an album. I completely lost my mind trying to sequence this record. Oh, did you? Yeah, it took months. It took months. And it ultimately, I cut a couple songs. That's the hardest thing. That is like killing something you love. Yeah. You know what I mean? Nowadays, like you can put them out. Like you can put them out as a couple songs. So it's not a big deal. But it feels like maybe it's a thankless job with this Bonnie Light Horseman music where we're all like obsessed with the album and the A side and the B side and you know how are they connected yeah what's the narrative arc of things let alone you know here's the banjo on this one and the saxophone on this one and this is in key of C and this is in you know you can't have two C's following each other well this one can't but it's like but it does go after that well it can't then you gotta put it in a different key because yeah all of those battles so tricky but also nowadays like because of the algorithms like people may not hear the music in the order that you put it on the record like basically whatever is popular will then rise to the top and that might be the first song people hear it is that's exactly right that's what the algorithm does so this whole notion of it really was like one two three four five like that's the order i do like doing that with people's records and seeing what they meant i really try to do that with a new record yeah no i'm the same i'm the same it's special when songs can speak to each other and a lot of times they do what person place or experience has most altered your life The person that leaps to mind is my grandma. My parents had a house and then my grandparents also, when they were alive, had a house on the same land. And now, this is an aside, but my brother's family has a house on this farm. And we have recently left New York City and we are living in Vermont and we're going to renovate my grandparents' house and move into it. So it's kind of a full circle moment for us. But this house, my grandparents' house, like I, I spent a lot of time down there. It's literally my happy place. Like when I was getting ready to give birth for the first time, I did like a hypnobirthing class, you know, and they're like, what is your happy place? And I thought, it's my grandma's house. And I'm, I picture myself like laying on the floor with like a sunbeam coming in, like a carpeted floor and a sun coming in the sliding glass door. My grandma was an incredibly creative woman that wasn't an artist per se. You know, she's a homemaker mostly and a sort of community member. And she was a quilter. She made quilts and amazing cook, amazing entertainer. She wrote letters every morning. So in the pandemic, we fled from New York. I was pregnant with our second baby. We had the baby on this farm and then we moved into my grandma's house and I found a box full of old like letters from my grandma and read them and amazing eye for detail like it was always so-and-so was wearing this type of fabric you know and the hors d'oeuvres were like this and like this type of bird is hanging out in the tree like really an eye for detail but there are two ways in which she really set me on a path one was that she and my grandpa would travel a lot my granddad was retired but he was consulting he was like a solar energy 
guy back in the day, you know, before, before it was cool. So he was, he would be flying around. They went to like Europe and then we'd go to China and Australia. And my grandma would go, you know, with him and they would bring me back things from wherever they were. And there always was this value of like any chance you can travel, you got to do it. Like they sort of instilled like a wanderlust that I think is actually was pretty formative for me in terms of like becoming a touring musician. And the other thing they did is that they brought me home, I think from China, this tiny size violin when I was seven years old. I had seen a woman in my elementary school in a beautiful dress. She came with a gown and she played the violin and I thought, this is, I'm going to play the violin. And they brought home this, I think a one eighth size little red violin. And then they paid for my violin lessons as a child. And I would even go to their house in the morning to practice, like before I went to school. Wow. So eventually I gave up the violin and I picked up the guitar and I started to write songs. And I, you know, I don't think of the violin as any part really of my musicality now, but as a formative instrument, like just to be living with that kind of melodic music, music, it was pretty huge for me. So I think the gift of that violin and the lessons and the space to practice it, because actually no parent wants a kid to be learning <laughs> violin in their house. You know, you're terrible for years. And then the travel. It, I think like certainly I became someone really just, I wanted to tour around and play music. And so I, I thank her for that. Oh my God, how lovely. Stringed instruments and wanderlust. That's pretty great. Good combination. Yeah. Really, I cannot thank you enough for coming and answering all these questions. So fun. What an amazing format. I'm like really impressed. It was totally fascinating to hear like Tony Blair and Alan coming, like the just amazing variety of people and minds. And, you know, I'm just at the beginning of doing a bunch of interviews for the record I'm putting out. And it's like usually so boring. <laughs> like this, there's just no way to get access to something fresh, you know? I'm dying to hear your next record. Amazing. So, so excited for this to be out in the world. I bet you are too. I mean, you know, you've been doing a lot of giving birth. Well done. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Anais's new self-titled album is out now, featuring the songs Bright Star, Brooklyn Bridge, and many more. You can also see Town on Broadway now or on tour. Mini Questions is hosted and written by me, Mini Driver. Supervising producer, Aaron Kaufman. Producer, Morgan Lavoie. Research assistant, Marissa Brown. Original music, Sorry Baby, by Mini Driver. Additional music by Aaron Kaufman. Executive produced by me, Mini Driver. Special thanks to Jim Nicolay, Will Pearson, Addison O'Day, Lisa Castella and Anique Oppenheim at WKPR, Dela Pescador, Kate Driver and Jason Weinberg, and for constantly solicited tech support, Henry Driver. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Hold up. 
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.